Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5 this morning. We finished our Advent series on December 24th, and then uh, Josh preached a sermon from Colossians where he's been preaching from, and now we're going to return to the place where we left off on November 26th. I want to refresh your memory from Mark chapter 5. In chapter 4, Jesus taught parables to explain the principles and the power of God's kingdom. And then Mark transitions to explain and even display some ways in which, in real life, Christ showed those principles and powers of his kingdom. And these are examples. He, he calmed a storm at sea. Jesus has the power over creation. He delivered a man from being enslaved to many demons. He restored him to life. That is, Jesus' power extends even to the, to the forces of evil, even to his enemies. Jesus reigns. And today we come to two examples of Jesus' power over sickness and death. Uh, this would always be a timely lesson in any church. I think for those of us who have lost loved ones in the last year, it is certainly an appropriate lesson today. Here's God's word, beginning at Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. 
This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his Holy Spirit. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would send forth your word and accomplish the purposes for which you send it. It's a promise that you've made that you would always do that. And so even now we ask that you would be faithful to that promise, giving your people ears to hear what your spirit says. I pray, Father, knowing my own frailties, my own weakness, my own sin and need, that you would be willing to use a sinful crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Radical. Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream by David Platt. Released in 2010, the book sold one million copies in less than two years. I think today it's probably closer to a million and a half copies. That's actually a huge number in the category of Christian books. And if you have ever read the book yourself, you might agree that there are some useful points that we could glean from it as believers. may also be some things to critique, some things to push back against. And so I'm not mentioning radical as an endorsement. In fact, you have probably heard me say that I think that Michael Horton's book, Ordinary, is a much more important read than radical. And yet I I mention radical because I think its popularity says something about a particular longing which exists in modern American Christians. And that is there's something within us that delights and finds it enticing to possess a faith which could be described as radical. And Auburn is unique in the sense that it has many opportunities to allow yourself to feel radical. Lots of Bible studies, lots of campus ministries, and those are all good things. Occasionally, you will have in Auburn a famous Christian speaker who comes to town, and he will carry in tow a host of social media influencers, and their cell phones are rolling to catch a glimpse of the radical faith. I'm sure 20 Something years ago when I left Auburn, I thought I had a radical faith too. It always leaves you with feeling that you have done something very important for God. That you have loved Him more than others. But I wonder if you would consider this text. Do you think that Jesus wants these two desperate people to walk away from this encounter feeling empowered because their faith was so radical? Or do you think he wants them to walk away having learned to trust him personally and fully? Paul Tripp rightly says that your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith, which is why God invites his people to put their faith in him. For faith, in fact, to have any power at all, it must be fixed squarely upon the powerful name of Christ. Your faith doesn't need to be radical. In fact, I think it needs to be radically simple. Mark chapter 5 summons you to believe upon Christ, to, to hold on to Christ, to trust Christ implicitly. If there is anything radical in the passage before us, it's the providence of God 
to wipe away and push away every other possible resource so that these two come to the end of themselves and they have no other hope but to trust in Jesus. And that's really the essence of true faith. This woman and Jairus trust Jesus not because they are so radical, but because they are so helpless. And it's their desperation that makes their faith radically simple. Where else are you going to go? What else do you really have to trust in? What can you possibly try? I can't help but wonder in a congregation like this if there are not some who feel that today. That you are not already at the end of yourself and you would say, I don't really know what else there would be. It would have to be Christ. For them, the question of faith plays out on this field of of sickness and in death. For you, it may be something else, another field, relationships, finances, grief, overwhelming circumstances, or simply will I break with this particular sin pattern? But for Jesus, the issue is always the same. Will you trust me? Will you push aside your doubts and your fears and your frustrations and your cynicism and in whatever spot I have driven you to be helpless? Your faith must be radically simple. That's the point of our passage this morning. It must have one object of hope, Jesus, and his power to care for you. And so we're going to walk through this passage with three points this morning. It's miraculous how I do that every time. Texts really do have three points. We'll see here the great equalizer, the great exchange, and thirdly, the great resurrection. We'll start with the great equalizer. What we've just read, I think, is great storytelling. That is two stories laying over one another and they intersect at one point. If you've ever seen a good documentary on TV or you've read a good book, you notice that this is a pattern that good storytelling always has. This larger story is told while weaving together these ancillary stories that connect powerfully. This is actually the reason that people will ask you things like, hey, do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? For those who are a little bit older, do you remember where you were when you heard about Kennedy's assassination? Well, this is not just storytelling. This is the way real life works. Things are happening while other things are happening. And they weave together, but here's the providence of God. Very likely, Jesus comes back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which is close to his home base, Capernaum. And every time he's on this side of the Sea of Galilee, huge crowds flock to him. Look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. What's a synagogue ruler. We talked about this earlier in Mark. Jairus is not a a rabbi. He's not a teacher. He's not a priest. He's He's a lay person. And his functions really in the context of the local synagogue are something more like that of a, of a deacon. He, he keeps up the synagogue itself. He arranges for the times of the meeting, who's going to speak. But probably the most important thing that Jairus does is he actually keeps track and keeps up with the scrolls. He takes care of them so that what you and I think of as the Old Testament can be read from week to week in the context of Sabbath worship. 
Here's the other thing you need to know. In the, in the world of ancient Israel, the synagogue is the, the epicenter of religious life. And so Jairus is prominent. He's well known. He's respected. He's probably held in very high esteem. In, in, in relation to his political or religious views, it's probable that he's a Pharisee. We don't know that for sure. Here's what else you need to know. Jesus has already done several things in synagogues on the Sabbath day that have caused the religious leaders, that is, people like Jairus and his band, to turn against Jesus. You remember he healed on the Sabbath. You remember that he cast out demons on the Sabbath and this in the synagogue. So that Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3 verse 6 that the Pharisees held counsel on how they could destroy him. In other words, it was maybe not for Jairus personally, but for those who were of his band, the tide had really already turned against Jesus. And yet you notice the desperation of this father, verse 22. He fell at Jesus' feet and implored him, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And it sounds like faith, doesn't it? For Jairus, it's not a question of whether Jesus can help, but will he help before it's too late? Mark says he went with him. But then along the way, an interruption that probably to Jairus felt like terrible timing. People are pressing all around Jesus. Mark says, verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. As a pause in the story, Mark tells it in such a way that your heart is moved to compassion. But let's be very clear, that's not how the people around her that day felt about her. Those who knew her condition, their first thought was, she's unclean. According to Leviticus 15, she is ceremonially unclean as it pertains to worship. Why? Was God trying to be cruel to people who were hurting? No. Not at all, but in the Old Testament, God uses a symbol of blood to characterize the picture of life and death, to show forth His holiness. And so, in the temple, it's, it's filled with symbols declaring that only a, a person who is clean and spotless and perfect could approach the Almighty God. And so, all of these Old Testament laws were meant to point to the fact that every one of you, at some point, really is unclean. But there's going to be a priest who's finally perfect. All of us are unable to approach God, meaning all of you need a Savior. All of you need a spotless lamb to be slain to pay for your sins. But what happened in the course of the context of this is that the human heart gets hold of God's law. And instead of having compassion on those who are hurting, it just resided to the place of pushing certain people in certain classes to the, to the place of being unclean as if they were outcasts and shunned. And that's this woman. She's not even supposed to come in contact with the crowd. And you feel her desperation. Twelve long years with the same condition. And she went from doctor to doctor in a world that had more superstition and hocus pocus than it did real medical practices. 
One scholar that I heard talks about a common treatment in the ancient world to deal with an issue of blood like this. You, you take a quail egg and you dry it out in the sun and then you put it in a linen cloth and you carry that on your body near to the spot of the blood. And so you can imagine with good advice like that, it's no wonder that she suffered much and now she's broke. And she's more sick than when she started. Let's pause the story for just a second. Two characters, and they are both desperate, and they are both radically different. If Jairus is respected, this woman is scorned. If people listen when Jairus speaks, they run when she tries to be heard. If Jairus has a family, she long since lost hers. If he had any money, she's flat, broke, which points to a fact that that all of us know, but many of us spend our entire lives trying to ignore, and that is that in a fallen world, sickness and death are no respecter of persons. You will at some point get sick, and though you do not face your own death but once, Every single time you face it with people you love, you feel the sense that that damnable enemy of death is the great equalizer of human beings. And he haunts the rich, and he haunts the poor, and he taunts the prominent, and he taunts the unknown. If Mark intended to show the power of Jesus in real-life situations, he could hardly have laid forth a, a darker, blacker, more bleak canvas to explain the fallen world in which you and I really do live. Eric, I've made a lot of money, and every Tuesday I sit at the clinic next to a man who has been on welfare most of his life. And we are in exactly the same boat. I've had great insurance. And he has had none. And my health is no better than his. It's humbling, actually. Barry frequently expressed this kind of odd sentiment to me. I had the privilege of ministering to him and with him when he was an elder in the church that I served in the past. He was a strong believer. And his faith really was, it really was rested on Christ. But most people who knew him had said that in business, Barry was a hard driving, cutthroat, sometimes arrogant man. But it wasn't until he faced this great equalizer of sickness and death that I witnessed this man gain a heart of humility and grace toward other people. And I watched him gain a beautiful desperation to see God. And in the end, Barry, like Jairus and the woman, didn't need a a, a radical faith. They needed a tested faith that was content 
to simply look in the face of Christ. And though he couldn't understand the circumstances, they can't understand the circumstances. They could see in Jesus' face. I can't escape the great equalizer. But if Jesus intervenes, I'll be okay. In fact, the same is true for you, isn't it? But praise God, that's what this story tells us. That Jesus came into the earth to engage this great equalizer of mankind. To momentarily push back the curse of sickness. All while striking a defeat and death blow to death itself. That's why we came into the Advent season And we left the Advent season singing the same first song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. I didn't cry when I wrote this. The curse of this fallen world impacts everything. It simply does. But Christ came into the world to say to both sickness and death, this far you may go and no further which is why your faith must be radically simple. It must have one object of hope, Jesus, and his power to care for you. So that's the great equalizer. Now notice the great exchange. Pick up at the story in verse 27. Mark tells us what the woman thought and what Jesus knew. And what she thought was based partly on superstition. There was a popular belief at the time that a person's power was transferred to the clothes in which they wore. Which is why she snuck through the crowd to simply touch the hem of his garment. Hundreds of people are brushing up against Jesus and she puts her last hope of health on a a slight exchange. A simple touch of his clothes. I can be healed. And strangely, she touches his clothes and she really is healed. Is that because Jesus' power was in his clothes? No. That's why I think it's a mistake to call his faith radic- to call her faith radical. She's desperate, but at the moment her faith is an odd mix of superstitious magic and hopes concerning the things which she really has heard about Jesus. But the compassionate Christ refuses to let this encounter simply be a brief exchange. He refuses to let her leave without healing her soul. And in a sense, simplifying her faith. Jesus stops everything as if Jairus' blood pressure could get any higher. And he says, who touches me? And his disciples who are single-mindedly focused are like, Jesus, that's a a dumb question. Everybody's touching you. We got to go. Look at verse 30. Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. So then why does he stop? Why does he think he's got to make such a big scene? Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that unless she realizes that it was his power, not his clothes, which had healed her, she would remain diseased spiritually, 
even though healed physically. In other words, she would forever see Jesus superstitially as a healer rather than intelligently and truly as a savior. And religious people still do this. Infused with superstitious power, they substitute trinkets for faith. This particular gold cross is my relationship with Jesus. These beads in my hand that I pray for through, that's what gives me access. Or that saint which is buried upside down in my backyard as a patron saint to lost causes. But you see, friends, it's not a Mark chapter 5 problem, and it's not a Catholic church problem. It's a heart problem. Because there is something which is so tempting about a a brief encounter, just a, a simple exchange with an object that's somehow laced with power. That seems more effective and surely more convenient than faith in Christ. And Jesus says, no, The power to save is found in me. Look at verse 32. Jesus looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's not what her hand touched. It's what her heart held that saved her. Power went forth from Jesus for one particular reason, that she sought healing from him. I wonder if there are not some here today who are in the same way being called out of the crowd. Maybe you've been hiding, trying to only occasionally touch the garment of Jesus from a distance. Well, here's a passage that says, well, he already sees, he already knows that you are there. And could it be that he is inviting you to come forward from the crowd and tell him the whole truth? What would it mean for you to come to him with with fear and trembling and tell Jesus the whole truth? To finally come to the end of yourself, finally desperate, finally without hope, except that he would save you. What would it mean for you to have him look at you and say, Daughter, son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. You see, friends, this is very simple. The only reason that faith saves you is because only faith draws on the power of Christ to save. Your faith must be radically simple. What's the deal with this fear and trembling? She knows that by touching Jesus, she has technically made him ceremonially unclean. But Jesus, by her faith, has made her not just ceremonially, but truly spiritually clean. More than that, we'll see in just a minute that Jesus is going to touch a a dead body, which makes him again ceremonially unclean. Why is Jesus willing to do this kind of thing? Because these simple exchanges with unclean people is a great way for Jesus to illustrate the great exchange. That's what theologians call it. 
But for those who look to Jesus in faith, Jesus offers to exchange your filth for his spiritual purity, to exchange your sin for his righteousness, to exchange your well-deserved sentence of death and hell to his Father's affirmation in Christ. You've actually become a beloved son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I bet a lot of you have it memorized. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel great exchange. He takes your uncleanness and your impurity and your unholiness. By nothing but simple faith in Jesus, he gives you his perfection, his beauty, his holiness, which is why your faith must be radically simple. It must have one object of hope, Jesus and his power to care for you. The great equalizer, the great exchange, we close with the great resurrection. The timing is perfect. Just as Jesus has tested and refined the faith of this woman, he's about to do the same for Jairus. Verse 35 is tragic. You can imagine how his heart sinks when some arrive saying, hey, it's too late, don't even bother this teacher. Now you notice what Jesus uses to say something profound to him. Jairus, who do you think I am? As it pertains to life and death, do you think I'm just another teacher? Do you think I'm as helpless as everybody else in this crowd? Which is why I say Jairus' faith at this moment is not radical. He's got no other hope, which is why Jesus gives him two commands. Verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. Which is his way of saying, the enemy of death is not stronger than me, and you can trust me implicitly. And this is always the way Jesus tests faith. He invites you to stare, not at the circumstances that threaten you, not at the things which rouse such deep fear within you, but to stare into his face and to see his goodness. And some of you have seen this in your own life, where Jesus seems to take away every other option of hope so that you have nowhere else to turn, and you must look at Jesus and believe that he is not only powerful, but good. Christ intends to make Jairus' faith simple, absolutely uncomplicated. Either Jesus has the power to save or his daughter is dead. Jesus comes back to the house and finds something which is culturally expected. That is a crowd of mourners who have been paid to weep over the death of this loved one. And so between verse 38 and verse 40, you just about get whiplash. People are weeping and wailing loudly. Jesus says, verse 39, the child is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Can you imagine a more hurtful scene for this father? But Jesus uses even this to invite Jairus to believe in Christ more than the mocking crowd. You cannot pay anyone else to enter and share your misery. To have the kind of compassion that Jesus already has coursing through his veins. Why does he take Peter, James, John, and the girl's parents? Because at this moment, these are the only people who really do believe. 
And as he said earlier in Mark, to those who have, more will be given. To those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. Now, take your finger and put it on verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. This is very simple and yet very profound. Yes, on on one hand, Jesus comes to touch an unclean, dead body. And as I've said, he is taking on, in a sense, her death in his own body. That's what he's going to do when he goes to the cross. So that you and I never will permanently in Christ suffer the real sting of death. But there's even more going on here. This is a picture of the, the great resurrection. Yes, I am talking about the fact that there is a true, real resurrection coming. When Jesus returns and he calls his people home, when the dead in Christ come out of their graves and they meet the Lord in the air, it's all over the New Testament, especially 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But this is actually a picture of the great resurrection that occurs every time a person who is ever dead in their trespasses and sins is raised to life. Why does Jesus walk over and speak to a girl who's dead? She can't hear him. He speaks. He grabs her hand because she can't speak. She can't grab his hand. Do you see, friends, that every person who knows Christ as Savior came to faith not because they reached out, and grabbed the hand of Jesus through some universal anticipatory grace, but because he reached out and very willingly touched specific dead men and women and raised them to life. Great resurrection language is all over Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. The whole purpose of salvation is that in the eternal kingdom, he gets glory for having reached down and grabbed hold of dead men and women and brought them to life. He raised you. So many profound implications that has. How do you live in this new life as a raised person? I don't want to live as a dead man again. I don't want to live as a a slave in chain to hell. Having been raised, I now want to live and walk as one who is free. As one who lives. As one to whom Christ has given life. You see, Christ gives you this great resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life so that when he does return with a cry of command and the shout of the voice of the archangel that you who have shared in this first great resurrection will share in the greater resurrection. 
which is why your faith must be radically simple. It must have one object of hope, Jesus, and his power to care for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great hope, for this powerful lesson from your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will cause your word and spirit to accomplish its purpose in the hearts of your people. We pray that you would bless the remainder of our worship and the partaking of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing Joy to the World, which